The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. reading in Acts chapter 27. I'm going to come in the middle of the chapter just to avoid reading the whole chapter. I will fill you in a little bit about the early part that I jump over. We're coming into the voyage of Paul to Rome on a ship in the Mediterranean, and we're joining that voyage right where the crisis begins. This is an action chapter. I don't know of hardly a chapter I can think of where there's more exciting dramatic action going on than this voyage and storm and shipwreck in the Mediterranean. Listen as I read Acts 27, beginning at verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. When the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, and then fearing they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, You should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. And yet, now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. Then the fourteenth night had come, and as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected they were nearing land. They took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, 
Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you, When he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all of them, he broke it and began to eat. And they were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. When they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. God bless this drama of his word to teach us and give us a like faith to the apostle in this circumstance. Forty years ago, my wife and I spent several seminary years living 35 miles north of Boston on what's called the North Shore, Cape Ann. We attended a church there for all of our years that was quite close to Gloucester, Massachusetts. Now, we in Lancaster chuckle about people that don't know how to pronounce Lancaster, Believe me, when your town looks like it should be said Gloucester, they really chuckle because they say Gloucester. Gloucester. And we live near Gloucester, although we didn't say it that way. A town that depends almost 100% on the fishing industry. You used to drive into Gloucester, and what a picturesque place. A harbor full of fishing boats that went out daily after cod and swordfish and lobsters in the North Atlantic. There's a little coastal village not far from there where we lived for a while called Manchester by the Sea, very romantic name. And the residents would say Manchester by the Sea and Gloucester by the smell (laughs) because of the fish canneries, which you could indeed smell. Because we knew that town, we were quite interested in 1997 when Sebastian Younger's True to Life book appeared based on events that happened in Gloucester in the 1990s. The book, later a movie, many of you have probably seen the movie, is called The Perfect Storm. In October 1991, a sword fishing boat named Andrea Gale, with a crew of six, went too far out into the Grand Banks off Nova Scotia. Late in the season, they'd not had a good catch all season, and 
these fishermen don't make a regular salary. They get a cut of their catch. So if there's no catch, there's no pay. So they were pressing hard to make the use of the last of the season knowing that those waters are very dangerous in the late fall. The Andrea Gale and her crew, captained by Billy Tyne, was unaware, apparently, that a meteorological phenomenon was taking place in the North Atlantic, almost unparalleled. A large, powerful hurricane that that didn't come to shore in America but stayed out in the ocean was driving in to meet a northeaster of unusual power. And the Andrea Gale was right in the middle of it. The movie is very dramatic as it shows a small ship riding monster waves, you know, without uh, computer animation or however they do those things. You couldn't have these scenes because you couldn't film it the way it was. Waves that seemed to be as high as a skyscraper lifting a boat and then crashing it down. Well, sadly, the Andrea Gale was overturned and sunk with the loss of all hands. It's a tragic story. Acts 27, to me, presents an ancient version of the perfect storm. But it's the Apostle Paul that's in a boat in the Mediterranean Sea, not the Atlantic, holding fast to his God as he and the boat and the crew were lashed by winds and waves and rains and storm. Paul, of course, was on his way to Rome. He had appealed his case to Caesar, and he was going there as a prisoner held loosely under guard. And as I mentioned before reading it, Acts 27 gives us a dramatic reading that's amazing. Luke, of course, was on the ship. He says, we, he was there. Only an eyewitness could tell the kinds of details that Luke puts in here. And those who comment on Scripture say that this is one of the most amazing characterizations of a storm and shipwreck that in all of ancient literature. You would look far to find anything rivaling this for eyewitness detail happening as a ship broke up in a storm. To me, it's, it's a, such a chapter to read that by the end of it, I almost feel like a wave has swept over me and the wind has blown my hair and I'm a little bit seasick. It's, it's that alive, what you witness here. Well, Acts 27, of course, is valuable as historical narrative. It tells us how Paul got from Palestine to Rome, so it's, it's essential for as a link in the book of Acts. But many interpreters look upon this as almost a kind of teaching parable, that the apostle in his faith sets for us some patterns by which we too might live by faith in our version of various storms of life. I had to sing the Navy hymn, a beautiful prayer for the safekeeping of those who literally are on the oceans of our world. But I think that the prayer and those words, those in peril on the sea, can also be perhaps generalized to apply to people who are in peril on the seas of life and the storms of life that come after them. Hymn writers have certainly uh, thought that that would be true, as many different hymns have a kind of nautical uh, theme about them. I think of one that uses that imagery and says, The Lord's our rock, in Him we hide a shelter in the time of storm. There's an old gospel song, some of you probably wish I would have chosen it today, but I didn't, that has a, a dramatic 
refrain that you sing at the end, the anchor holds, the anchor holds. And it's literally talking about our trust in Christ. So I'm approaching Acts 27 today not only as history, it is that, but also in a sense that it teaches us, it teaches any Christian about approaching a storm-tossed voyage through life. First of all, and by the way, my first point is, is longer than the last two combined. So if you think I'm a long time getting through the first point, don't worry. My first point is this. We want to see a blanket of divine protection surrounding those whom God calls as his own. I'm not saying here in a foolish way that nothing bad can ever happen to a Christian. When I say a blanket of divine protection surrounds those whom God calls his own. Christians get cancer. Christians have terrible car accidents. Christians die. And after all, if we thought nothing bad ever happened, let me remind you, Paul was on his way to Rome where the eventual outcome of his being there after some time is going to be his beheading. So even death can come. But we're looking at the way that God providentially puts his protection around us while he has a purpose for us to be alive and to be in this world. And he will not let that purpose ever be short-circuited or cut off. Now, I want to just backtrack for a moment and fill in a little context of the earliest part of this chapter that I didn't read, beginning at verse 1. If you want to scan that, you may, certainly. Uh, Acts 27, there at the beginning, Paul sets sail for Italy from Palestine from the port of Caesarea. He's under the care of a centurion, a man named Julius, who apparently is a rather benevolent, kindly man. Now, Paul is a prisoner, but he's treated as a sort of VIP prisoner. With respect, he was a Roman citizen after all. He also was apparently one of the most experienced travelers on board this ship because he's able to give good advice that even the captain of the ship eventually finds to be useful. So they start out on a little coastal vessel that's just kind of moving, if you can picture, along the coast. And if it followed the coast the whole way to Rome, it would take a very long time. That's sort of the local ship that didn't venture out into deep water. But they meet up with a freighter. Now, you can maybe picture one of these gigantic oil tankers today that are longer than several football fields. It's amazing how big they are. They weren't that big, of course. But yet this is a ship big enough for 276 people to be on it. That's a a large Mediterranean ship for ancient times. And it was a a grain ship. It was loaded with wheat, we understand, from Alexandria in Egypt. Now, a ship like this is is kind of a tub. You know, it moves like a turtle. It it doesn't move real nimbly through the waters. It's, It's just a giant repository for cargo. And so... The centurion felt it would be best because there was a more direct uh, voyage to, to undertake to get on this ship with Paul, and off they go. They reach the island of uh, Crete, a harbor called Fair Havens. Sounds like a pretty nice place, but apparently it's not where they wanted to stay. Paul said, we need to stay here. The situation was exactly like that of the Andrea Gale that should not have been so far out in the Outer Banks in that season of the year. Paul said, I advise you to stay here. Spend a few months here for safety's sake. The captain ignored him, probably wanting to get his cargo unloaded and receive the profits, and off they went. And then we came into the story at verse 13. 
as a violent northeaster storm comes, and very rapidly everything just seems to deteriorate. This great big old freighter tub can't maneuver very well into the wind, and so they just have to let it be driven by the wind and go where it will. And they're worried that it may come aground. There's a place called Sirtis mentioned in there that was sort of a great swampy coast area that if a ship got in there, it would be yeah, it would stay there, basically. They would not be able to get it out. And pretty soon, Luke says, the eyewitness tells us that so bad was everything that all hope of our being saved was abandoned. Pretty bad. Well, I want to zoom in on verses 23 to 25, where Paul then stands before this crew. How exactly he was allowed to speak to them, I don't know. But Julius, the the centurion or the captain or somebody said, all right, Paul, if you want to address the crew, you can. Well, he can't resist. Being the apostle Paul, he said, first of all, I told you so. But after that, he didn't rub it in too much. He was there to say, take heart. There will be no loss of life, only the ship. And then he told of a vision he had received, a prophetic guarantee from God of safety for himself and the entire crew. And I want you to fasten on the phrase he said here because I think it's really important. The phrase that this came from, the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Now that was something probably most of these Egyptian sailors didn't know anything about, who this Hebrew God was. But Paul was telling them, the God to whom I belong and whom I worship is a great God, and he's put a guarantee on my life and your lives in this ship. Now, we don't receive these special revelations, at least not ordinarily. And yet, I believe biblically we can draw an equivalent line and say that every child of God in Jesus Christ, man or woman, boy or girl, is under a similar guardianship and bond of special relationship to our God. You think of the child of a, of a president of the United States. Immediately, they go into a bubble with a, a secret service agent, going to school with them everywhere they want to go. For some reason, I, was, uh, I remember well, I guess because I was a teenager at the same time as the Johnson girls, and I remember Lucy Johnson wanting to go out on a date, and she had to take the secret service band out on the date. I, th- I felt sorry for her. But think of this guardianship put over us, not because we're something unusual, but because we are those who are able to say we have a God to whom we belong and whom we worship. Maybe you heard the news item just about a week or so ago of a well-known actress, I won't mention her name, but uh, she was involved in an incident where her car, or I believe her husband was driving the car, that apparently he had a little too much to drink and the car was stopped and she apparently had a little too much also. And in a little altercation verbally with the officer, she said to the officer something like, you are about to find out who you are dealing with. That didn't go over really well. And she had to apologize later for that. Well, you know, maybe you could think that this was something like Paul saying, I'm a really important person. And God thinks I'm really important, so he's going to guard. No, that's not what's going on here. Paul is calling upon the God who set his destiny and called him to Jesus Christ and made him a new creation in Christ. 
and gave him an errand as an apostle to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And he's saying, look, I'm under this God's control. And he is around me and going before me and going behind me, and he won't let my errand be cut short. And because you're in the same ship as I, you're protected too. Earlier, he reminded us of similar things. Acts 18.9 has a, a night vision in which the Lord, I think I mentioned this in an earlier sermon, said, don't be afraid. Go on speaking, Paul. I'm with you. It happened again in Acts 23. The Lord said, as you have testified to me in Jerusalem, you're going to do the same in Rome. Don't worry. It will happen. Now, the point isn't whether you or I would have these visions. The point is, if we can say the same thing, that we have this same God to whom we belong and whom we worship, then we have this relationship of guardian grace around our lives. Are we aware of that? Are you aware of the fact that as God's adopted child, you are, in effect, the apple of his eye? That he has a blanket of protection over your life, and nothing will change the fact to have anything cut your life short one moment sooner than his plans for that life are realized. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to know when they're realized. Christians certainly die suddenly and unexpectedly. We don't know when our plan for our lives are over, but the Lord does. And nothing's going to happen until his plan and his destiny for you has been fulfilled. I heard somebody say this once. It's not a biblical statement, but I think it's a true one. The person said, every Christian is actually immortal on this earth, until his calling from God is completed. That's right. You're immortal on this earth until your calling from God comes to completion. Now, you might still say, I'd sure like to know when that end is going to come, and we don't know that. But the point is, God's going to be finished with us when the end does come, finished in terms of what he wants us to do in this world. Now, see how different this is from the worldly person. The worldly person exalts his or her independence. They say, nobody owns me. Nobody sets my agenda. I've got no strings on me. Well, the life of a Christian is such that we're, we're glad to say, I have strings on me. I belong to a God whom I worship. And we can say, too, what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians six nineteen and following, you are not your own. You are bought with a price, and therefore glorify God in your body. Don't live as if you just belong to yourself and you do whatever you want and live by any set of rules you choose to follow or make up for yourself. You are not your own. God bought you with a price, and he cares what happens to your life, and he's guiding that life. Like planet Earth in the solar system, you are a planet moving in a gravitational orbit, in a manner of speaking, around Christ, the sun, the S-O-N. Did you ever think of that? Your life is guided by belonging to God and belonging to Christ. Look at what a difference this makes on the deck of a foundering ship or in the midst of any kind of a worldly crisis. Paul sees something in a dimension that other people don't even know exists. He sees God working. The God of providence. 
And he's saying to himself, God is doing this. This storm belongs to God. He can calm it in a moment. He can let it roar worse than this. He can do whatever he decides to do. I'm his man in the midst of it. And so he can have this calm. When even veteran sailors are running around panicking, throwing the tackle of the ship off to lighten the ship somehow, getting rid of the precious cargo, they don't see the unseen reality that Paul sees. They only see the circumstances. Are you a person that reacts to storms by the circumstances or by the unseen God of the storm? You know, I really believe one last item, and I'm still under this first point here quickly, but people of this world seldom understand how much they owe to godly people in the midst of their society. How many things do not happen? How many things are we protected from because of someone's prayer or because of the way the Lord is directing some godly life? Remember how in the Old Testament the Lord told Abraham, Abraham prayed for the safety of Sodom for one reason. His nephew Lot was living there, and God said, I'm going to destroy that place. But he said, I'll tell you what, Abraham, if there are ten righteous men there, I'll spare the city. Well, of course, there were not 10 righteous men there. But how many places in our society and across history does that apply? Here is a crucial leader. Here is a crucial group of praying people. Listen, folks, as I prayed this morning in the pastoral prayer, we have prayer groups in our Congress and in our Senate, and many of the officers of that body attend those. We get a lot of good reasons to be cynical about government. But don't ever forget, there are believers there holding back the tide. There are believers there asserting their best of moral principle and of moral vision. How many places is there one teacher in a public school resisting the pressures of things that, and perhaps intervening with a principal or intervening in a faculty meeting and changing the course of things? How many places is there a manager or an executive or a company owner asserting themselves in some manner for righteousness. You don't ever see it. But things are held back by that man or woman in the midst of a stormy ship's deck. American society has no clear knowledge of how much we owe to the presence of righteous people in the midst of this corrupt land. Well, I've spoken about this protection that God puts this blanket of protection around those he calls. But now two quicker points as we move on here. Secondly, I want you to see the practicality of thanking God in the middle of your storm. By the way, I I need to interject just so that you would think about how different the actions of Paul are on this ship, in this storm in the Mediterranean, from Jonah in his ship, in his storm in the Mediterranean, quite a few centuries earlier. Absolutely different circumstances, right? Jonah was running from the call of God, avoiding God, and God met him in the storm and had to get his attention. One of the ways he got his attention was to rebuke and shame him as pagan sailors who knew not the true God rebuked Jonah and said, what kind of a man are you? You brought all this danger on us. Nothing like that for Paul, just the opposite. Paul is obeying God's call. And therefore, instead of bringing danger on people, 
he brings the protection of God and the blessing of God. But notice how being yielded to the Lord in this situation, he's also of a great practical use. He's one of those few people who can keep his head in the midst of this crisis. Look at verse 35, how he summoned the crew to listen to him in the darkest hour. They'd been days. You know, I, I don't know what they had to eat. They had chucked out a lot of the, a lot of the stores and all the water washing in, many of their foodstuffs must have been ruined. They, they'd hardly eaten for days. They were exhausted. They were hopeless. Paul says, wait a minute. Somebody needs to take charge here. He got up and he said, men, it's time to eat, believe it or not. It's not time to commit suicide. It's time to eat. And he stood up and thanked God for bread in the midst of all the people and set an example that we're told encouraged them all. And they strengthened themselves in this practical way. What I want you to notice when we talk about giving thanks here, he was specifically giving thanks for bread, but he was thanking God for the bread. You know, often we we will tell people, give thanks in all things, and, and people think, well, you know, if I've lost my job, I'm supposed to say, thank you, God, for taking my job away. Or I get cancer, am I supposed to say, thank you, God, for cancer? Of course not. There's a great difference between thanking God for a disaster, which we're never asked to do, and thanking him for himself and his presence in the disaster. That's different. It's God to whom we give thanks, not for the disaster. And I wonder if possibly there isn't some situation in a life here in your sphere of your job or your family, wherever you influence other people or interact with other people, perhaps some stormy place. And if it isn't stormy right now, watch out. The storm could be coming where you will be the one who keeps your head because of a calm trust in the God of the storm. And therefore, you will be the one who might be of great practical use to others and could say, look, wait a minute, calm down. Don't panic. Don't throw yourself off the ship. There are things we can do here. First of all, let's give thanks to God. Those who know how to praise their Savior at all times have an uncommon habit of being used in those practical ways. Well, lastly, I want you to see how Acts 27 testifies to what I call the sure anchor of divine faithfulness. There's only one anchor here that works. Now, God had promised that Paul would come to Rome, and he did come to Rome. The God who plans his plans for us in our lives and working out saving grace in those lives is going to bring those plans to completion. He does not break promises. His sovereign will for each life cannot be cut short from its preordained destiny set for each of us. Do you notice verse 40 of the text where it says that the Sailors of this ruined ship cast off the four anchors into the sea. They finally let go of the last earthly ties, the last earthly protections, and threw themselves on the mercy of God. And if there was going to be any anchor helping them now, it was going to be the unseen anchor of the faithfulness of God. And you see the story. 200, there's a lot of people on this ship, 276 soggy souls landed on an island called Malta. 
Some of them evidently couldn't swim. Luke even points that out. Some could swim, some couldn't. Some had to grab a piece of wood of the ship and hold on. What do you think the odds were with 276 that not one person in this kind of a storm would be lost? Certainly we're intended to see that here is the great hand of a father's protective plans. And believer in Christ, I address you today and challenge you to look for an anchor of divine faithfulness in the midst of your stormy circumstances. Probably doesn't look exactly like this storm, but some of you are tossing and turning. Folks in the early service saw me in the hallway and said, that's me. My ship's already breaking up at the stern, and the decks are heaving in every direction for various reasons. It's not the anchors of earthly protection that are going to help you. It's the anchor of divine faithfulness. Trust your Father. Don't panic. Don't run helter-skelter grabbing every worldly device you can possibly come up with to aid you in this storm. Put your trust in Him actively, vocally. Tell Him that. As I was working on this message, I had already determined I wanted to bring a particular verse from the Psalms to your notice at the close of the message. It's Psalm 77, 19, if you want to write it down for further consult. It's not a well-known passage. I had one of those little delightful serendipities of God's Spirit when I read a report from Stephen Light, our church planter in Tampa, about Thursday this week. And guess what? Stephen Light cited and spoke about the obscure passage, Psalm 77, 19. It's from the psalmist named Asaph, not David. Here's what Asaph wrote. Lord, your way was through the sea. Your path was through the great waters. But then this line. Yet your footprints were unseen. God's way is still through the great waters of your life, through the storms of your life. But very often you won't see his footprints. He's there. He's going before you and beside you. He bought you by the blood of his son. He doesn't intend to let you slip out of his fingers. And his guarantee is the same one that you heard earlier in the service from Isaiah 43. When you pass through deep waters, I will be with you. The rivers will not sweep you away. Do you trust that divine anchor enough to cast a guarantee of your very life on it? May God help you do it. Father, I ask you today that we would be those that might have this quiet calm, this uncanny trust that others don't understand when everything's heaving in the wrong direction and the ship is breaking up. Maybe for someone right now, this really comes home because it's where they're living. Father, I pray you make us people of a true faith. You have set your seal on us The bonds of your love are upon us in Christ. You've made us new creatures. You are the God 
whom we worship. You call us your own. You will keep us. How we praise you that you can do nothing wrong. Thank you in the name of our great mediator, Jesus Christ. Amen.